0: 1 Kings chapter 19, 1 Kings 19. We'll be looking at the first 13 verses together. Now we're in our third week in a series we call Till He Appeared. We've been looking at the um, appearances of God, the visitation of God. There are certain times in Scripture where God appears in in a special way in the form of a cloud or a fire or the storm And sometimes in the form of a man, we have a theological term that we use for that. It's called a theophany. So it just means theos, God, and phania, which means appearance or manifestation. And so when God demonstrates His presence in a particular way, and uh, you know, I was talking to my wife this week about how how heavy the series has been uh, so far. So if you've been the last couple of weeks, we talked about wrestling with God the first week. And then last week, uh, Caleb Cortese was here, a new pastor in Chandler, and he talked about being in the fire. And so it hasn't been exactly, um, you know, just bright and joyous themes uh, at Christmas. And uh, if that's what you came for, then I'm afraid it's not going to be the case again today. (laughs) And I was thinking about why that is. It's when we talk about from from O Holy Night, you know, uh, where we get the title of this series. um, Long lay the world. And sin and error pining till he appeared. And so there's a context of bad news before there's the reception of good news, isn't it? Isn't that always the case? When God appears, when he comes, it's for a certain purpose. It's to rescue, it's to pull people out of where they are, away from him. And so we see the same thing today as he comes to Elijah, the prophet, the great prophet of Israel, when Elijah has lost his way. He's disoriented. He doesn't know where true north is. He doesn't understand his life. And we're going to talk about that today. In the context of the passage that we're reading today, Elijah has just had one of the greatest moments of his ministry life. He, He has just defeated the prophets of Baal. So if you remember the story, just the chapter before this, Elijah... Uh, calls out the prophets of Baal. That's a false god in the Old Testament that many people were following after. And there was these prophets that served him. And at the time, King Ahab and, and Queen Jezebel had just a firm grip of power. And, and they, they also followed these other gods. And Elijah challenges them to a duel, these prophets. And he sets up altars. And who, it's, it's whoever's going to receive fire from heaven. That's the true God. And so the prophets of Baal go first and they they dance and they sing to Baal and Baal is silent. He doesn't answer. But then with one prayer, even though Elijah has covered the the sacrifice with water and done all of these things, he prays once and fire from heaven comes and ignites and it's shown that Yahweh, the God of Israel, is the true God. And so he's just had this amazing moment. Now all the prophets of Baal have been killed and it seems like things are, are turning in Israel towards the Lord And then Jezebel says, No, I'm going to kill you, Elijah. And all of it kind of comes tumbling down. And this is where we find Elijah on the run after one of the greatest ministry moments of his life. Chapter 19, verse 1. This is the story as it picks up Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. For the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left, and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, in a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. We were talking at our uh, gospel community a few weeks ago uh, around a table about how hard it is for children, young people, to grasp the idea of, of directions. Um, north, south, east, and west. I'm talking about cardinal directions. And maybe some of you are thinking, hard for kids. Like, I, I, still, can't, you know, I still can't get my mind around it. Um, but it's just so hard you know, when you're first learning how to tell directions. And I t- told this story about in first grade... When we were learning about the cardinal directions, um, I I was so confident and so confidently wrong about the way that it worked. (laughs) So I remember very confidently believing that whatever direction I was facing was north. (laughs) Maybe some of you remember that or had other kind. Maybe you thought north was up. Right And south is down. But whatever direction I was facing, I believed was north. I was so confident in this. I remember explaining it to a friend after class who was struggling with the concept, unlike me, who had it all down pat, right? So uh, I was telling him, no, no, whatever direction you're facing is north. And then, you know, whatever's to your right, that's east. And whatever's to your south is behind you. And whatever is west is to your left. I was so confident. And then my friend, my best friend at the time, Daniel... Gilmer, he was standing to my side and he said, wait a second, <laughs> if, if North is always in front of you, he's like, I'm, we're not facing the same way. He said, so how can both of us be facing North? <laughs> you know, mind blown, but I, I couldn't like, I couldn't admit that, right? I had to keep going in the confident, like, oh, I don't know how that all works out, but you know, this is the way it is. But I was left with uncertainty about it, even though I continued on in my confidence. And I believe that there's that combination of external confidence and internal confusion when it comes to what is true north, when it comes to the truth, and it comes to our political and religious and cultural landscape. I think there's lots of people, there's no shortage of people who would say, this is true north, this is the direction. That you should live your life. This is the way it is. This is the truth. This is the diet that you should have. This is the way you should raise your kids. This is how you maintain health. And this is it. This is how you can be happy. There's a lot of confidence in that. And then others say, oh, no, no. That, That doesn't work for me. And so you should actually do it like this. And then others say, you know what? Both of those people are wrong what you have to do is you have to find whatever true north is for you. You have to figure out whatever, whatever direction you're facing is actually true north. Whatever you want to believe or find comfort in or the truth in, that's the best way to live. Now I wonder, even though there's a lot of external confidence, if that hides an internal confusion and lack of confidence that we actually have on the inside when it comes to what we actually believe. Because it doesn't seem like there's a lot of people that are on track. And when you think about any standard measure that we talk about, I mean, is anxiety increasing in our culture or is it decreasing? It's increasing, right? Are people so... Are they, The more they project how I'm locked into this, I, I know that this is the truth, or this is my truth, or this is what's true for me, Is that confidence resulting in any kind of really true north experience? Maybe all of the outer confidence hides an inner confusion, and maybe that confusion is evidence for the fact, or at least the beginnings of evidence, that there is a true north that everybody is longing for and hasn't found yet, perhaps. Perhaps. And we have this question of disorientation. We find the prophet Elijah disoriented today. He doesn't know what he wants to do anymore. He doesn't want to live anymore. He's tired. He's exhausted. He doesn't know what he should do with his life. And the, the question that's asked here a couple different times and the subtle question that's in his mind is, what am I doing here? I mean, that is the question of, of disorientation, right? What am I doing here? You see it in movies all the time when, when maybe somebody's on a journey and they've, they've gone off track and they say, What are we doing here? Or maybe a husband and a wife in a movie are, are fighting with one another and they, and they say something like this, What is it that we're doing here by this fighting? What, what do they mean by that? They mean there's a vision for our marriage, there's a vision for who we were supposed to be, and we're off track, we're disoriented. What are we doing here? That's the question that God asked Elijah twice in this passage. What are you doing here? And of course, it's really just the piercing echo of the same question that Elijah is asking himself. What am I doing here? Because he's out in the middle of the wilderness and he doesn't know what he wants to do. And He's doing all the things that all of us do when we're disoriented and we can't find our way. He's he's saying things like this. Life is a vicious cycle. Look, it's just the same. Your people just do this over and over again. It's meaningless. And He repeats, it's enough. And that He wants to die. I want to talk about how the Lord comes to Him in the middle of that disorientation today. And here's the question I want us to ask. How can you return when you are spiritually disoriented? How can you return when you're spiritually disoriented? And I want to give you three things that you can return to. And all of them are good. All three things are good. But the first two are very insufficient. And so we'll go from the least powerful to the most powerful things that you can do to give yourself a true north again. So first... What can you return to? First, you can return to the strength of your calling. You can return to the strength of your calling. Elijah is wondering about his calling. Look at verse 4. He himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under the broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, Lord. Take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. So skip down to verse 9. He continues to tell us what's so wrong with him. Um, The Lord comes to him and he says, what are you doing here? And in verse 10 he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. See, Elijah's calling was to be a prophet of Israel. And so part of what he, why he's so upset right now is he feels like this calling has gone way off track. It's disoriented him. He's no longer doing the things that he was called to do. And he's saying basically two things. His main thing that he responds to with the Lord is this. I'm ineffective and I'm lonely. I'm ineffective and I'm lonely. I'm ineffective no matter what I do. The people of God continue to walk away from you. They continue to break your covenant. They continue to kill the prophets. And then he says... I'm lonely. I am the only one who is left. Now I want you to imagine coming to Elijah and giving him advice for how he should get out of this blue state that he's in, out of this disorientation. I think what most of us would do if we come to a great man like Elijah because he was a great man of God, is this is something that we would say. "Um, Cheer up, Elijah. You know, you need to believe in yourself again. (laughs) You are a great prophet of God. You're called. You're gifted. You may have lost the battle. You're going to win the war. Cheer up. Pull yourself up. Get back out there and believe in yourself. Now, I don't think that's actually all bad advice. Like I said, all of the things that we can return to are good. But I think that that impulse that we have towards doing that comes because we're just such a part of the It's a Wonderful Life culture, right? Right? Got to reference that around Christmas time. It's a Wonderful Life. If you've seen that classic movie with Jimmy Stewart, I saw it so many times in my childhood. I had to take a decade off. Um, it was like like every year, you know. So I haven't seen it in a while, um, but it's I've got it basically memorized. So we watched it every year when I was, I was a kid. And uh, if you remember the story, it's it's just it's an overview of his of his life. So the story of George Bailey, this great man. And this great man, we're, we're, we see the seeds being sown the whole time, is now off track. He's totally disoriented. He's given all of his life to serving other people. And so he's, he's, he saved his brother. He was a great war hero. And, and all of these things were told about his story. And then at the end, though, he loses a great sum of money and, and he is disoriented. And he thinks and he believes that it would be better if he had never been born. And so, what does the Lord in this story do? It sends the angel Clarence to him. And Clarence tells him, look, I'm going to show you what your life would be like without, what, what life would be like without George Bailey. And then he shows him all the people who would never have lived because he wasn't around to save them. He wasn't around to be the war hero. He wasn't around to save his brother Shows him what the town would be like, because he is the building and loan officer, and he supports the community. Now it's just run by big business, and it's terrible. Shows what his wife would be like. I think that was, that's one of the funniest parts. You're, without your life, your wife would be a spinstress, you know, and, uh, and basically be hopeless. And, and so he gets seen all these things, and then, so he, and, and then he sees how valuable his life is. And that's when he says I want to live again at the moment of greatest kind of turmoil he turns again and he says I want to live again. Why? What helps him come back to true north? It's realizing his own value. Now, again, you have value this morning. Elijah had great value in the story of his, of of the scriptures. And so it's true that you need to believe in yourself. And you need to know your gifts and you need to see the impact that the Lord has given you to have in this world. Elijah was a great man of God, but his greatness it wasn't enough for this moment. It didn't bring him back to true north. And I doubt very much if any one of us had come to him and said, "Hey, Let's cheer up. That we could have convinced him based solely on the strength of his own calling. I love what the angel says to him when he comes and ministers to him in verse 7. And it's a a phrase that I think we need to internalize. He says, Arise and eat. The journey is too great for you. The journey is too great for you, it's too much. What's amazing is, it's always too much. It doesn't matter if you're successful or a failure in whatever your calling is. It's always too much. Why is Elijah upset? He's upset because of his failure and he's upset because of his success. He's upset because of his failure. Verse 4, I am no better than my father's. He's feeling insufficient. He's feeling ineffective. I wish that I was a better prophet. And so he knows that he's been inadequate in some ways. But that's not really why he's upset. He's upset because of the success that he had that didn't bring about everything all at once. If you zoom out and see what, what just happened, I already described it for us, but he's just won the showdown. He beat the prophets of Baal... And they killed the prophets of Baal. Now it seems like all of Baal's followers are going to be running for the hills. Now it seems like the people will actually rise up and embrace Yahweh. Now it seems like Ahab, that evil king, and Jezebel, his evil wife, will now bow the knee. How could they not see the fire from heaven? Come down and see God at work. It was a a moment of great ministry success, but it led to a lot of hostility in his life because not everything changed at once. Now, he wanted good things. He wanted the glory of God to be on display in Israel. He wanted Israel to return to God. But he had placed God on his timeline and his box, and then he got discouraged because in the process of good things happening, it was only marginal progress. And so here's the real reason why he's upset, and it's the real danger for all of us. He's basically saying this, because my calling is over, my life is over. This is a really strong warning to any of us who are in ministry, especially, first of all, those of you who are serving in vocational ministry, maybe you're pastors, maybe you're a seminary student, um, maybe you're an elder at this church, maybe you work in the nonprofit world and you, you feed the hungry and you... you you are a missionary or you run a missions agency or whatever it is that you do, there's a danger here that we start to believe that our calling is the same thing as our life with God. Your gifts and your calling cannot be the only way that you return to true north. To what the Lord has for you. Now, you don't have to be in ministry to see this. What about marriage? Talk about marriage, a place where both your successes and your failures exhaust you. Let's say you have a very hard marriage. It's, a, it's, it's failing in some ways. Is that, is that an energizing thing? No, it takes away energy. It's hard. Let's say your marriage is really successful. Why is it successful? Because you're laying down your life for your spouse. <laughs> because you're prioritizing them. Because you are lifting them up. Because you're deeming them more important than yourself. Is that easy or is that hard? Parenting. Success and failure both exhaust you. Why? Because when things are going well, it's still hard. It's still hard to be a parent even when things are going well because you're running the schedule well and you're, you're engaging your kids and you're helping them follow the Lord and all of these things. It's exhausting. The journey, no matter what, is too much for you. Whether you fail or you're wildly successful there will come moments of great disorientation in your life. And so we often think that if I could just get to that successful place, then I won't be exhausted or anything anymore, disoriented. But that's not true. No matter what, the journey's too much for you. No matter what. And so you can return to the strength of your calling, but that only gets you so far. Because even if you're great at your calling, it won't be enough. So the second thing that you can return to is this. You can return to the power of God. Or remembering the power of God, we might say. Because that is what God shows Elijah. He shows and demonstrates who he is in the midst of of his spiritual malaise as he's just walking away from God. This is what God says to him. In verse 11, Go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by, and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. These are displays of God's power. He goes and he tells Elijah to stand on the mount, and Elijah doesn't move. Remember, he has to tell him twice to come out of the mouth of the cave. And so he tells them to go stand out. And when Elijah doesn't, he displays his power and he beats the mountain with his power, with wind and earthquake. Now, why is he doing that? What he's doing is he's sending reminders because all of these things are, are demonstrations of what God has done in the past in Israel. I don't think there's a single place in Scripture where we see so many theophanies those appearances of God all in one place. Because we've already seen the angel of the Lord. But although the Lord has come in the, in the cloud. He has come in the wind. He has come in the earthquake. And all of these things have happened in the story of Scripture. They're all happening at Mount Sinai when, when God appears there and He received the law. There's an earthquake at the bottom of the mountain. And so we see this is the way that God has appeared in the past. He's appeared in great power. And what he's doing is he's reminding Elijah, look, I know that you want the fire and the wind and the earthquake right now. I know that you want me to go and destroy Ahab and Jezebel. I know that you want me to just establish myself in the fullness of who I am right now. And I'm able to do that, but I'm choosing not to. And I want you to remind you that I'm able to do it. I want you to see it. I've been guiding this the whole time. I can do what I want to do but it's not on your timeline. And so he reminds Elijah of his power. And that can be a very powerful thing for us when we are disoriented. To remember the great deeds of God. To go back and see what He has done throughout history. To be reminded of who He is. It's a very useful thing to know. Certainly the thing that we often use, just like we say to someone, you're gifted, you're called, you'll get up, you'll win and we remind them of their calling, we also often, when someone is disoriented, we remind them of who God is, right? We say, God's at work in this. God's got this. He's powerful. He has your good in mind. All of these things are true. But sometimes, even that isn't enough to remember the power of God. Now, how can I say that? How can I say that sometimes it's not enough to remember the power of God? I think we know this. But it reminds me of the story of, of, of Jesus that he tells He's talking about the rich man and Lazarus. And we don't have time to unpack what all that story means and it talks about heaven and hell and what all that means there. But basically at the end of the story that Jesus tells there's this rich man and there's Lazarus, the poor man who waits outside. And, and they're separated into heaven and hell. And the dialogue at the end. Is the, is the rich man speaking to Abraham. And he wants someone, maybe Lazarus himself, or someone else, to go and warn his five brothers about the judgment to come. And he says, look, they'll, they'll listen. If you send someone, if you send Lazarus, he says, no, Father Abraham, he said to him, if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. But Abraham says to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone rises from the dead. What a remarkable statement. Even if someone rises from the dead, that's not enough to convince people sometimes. Even to see the most miraculous thing, the most powerful thing happen wouldn't be enough. It's possible for there to be fantastic displays of God's power and for people to be unchanged. I mean, the context of this passage proves that, doesn't it? God's just rained down fire from heaven. He's shown that he is the true God. And the people have not risen up. And Ahab and and Jezebel, they didn't bow their knee to God right then. They said, we're going to kill you, Elijah, for doing that. They, They saw a powerful display right in front of them, and it left them unchanged. And the same thing, by the way, is happening to Elijah. As God beats against the mountain in front of him, he's still in the cave. He's still waiting. This display of God's power, he already believes in. He knows that God can do this. He's already seen God rain fire. He's already known God to be in the wind and the rain that he just sent for the drought that's been in Israel. He already knows that God has power. He doesn't have a knowledge problem or a memory problem. Yet, what is it that moves him? It's interesting to look at in the passage. There's actually two things that physically move Elijah. Elijah. He's in the place of disorientation. And he doesn't care about anything or anyone. What actually moves him back into mission? It's when God feeds him and speaks to him. And what I love about this is how remarkably gentle both of those things are from the Lord to his servant. He feeds and He speaks. First, He feeds. These are the provisions of God. You can return to the strength of your calling. You can return because of the power of God. But ultimately, the thing that I believe moves us to true north is the gentle provision of God. He feeds, verse 5. He lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was a, his head, a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time, touched him and said, Arise and eat. The journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. He moves in the strength of that food literally to the Mount of God, Mount Horeb, otherwise known as Mount Sinai. This is the mountain of the Lord. And He dwells there in a cave, or what we might translate as an opening, or what we might translate as a cleft. Cleft of the rock. If you are reading that with your biblical Senses engaged. You will know this is a return from Moses himself. Moses stays in the cleft of the rock while God beats the mountain in front of him. And many people believe that perhaps there's only one good cleft on Mount Sinai. I don't know. They could have been in the exact same spot or close to each other. Many centuries later, Elijah returns to the place where God has shown His glory before, passed by. And now He experiences that glory. But to get there, He has to be fed because the journey is too much for Him. And so the Lord feeds Him. He doesn't come right away and rebuke Him. Now He's going to rebuke Him, by the way. The Lord does rebuke. But that's not how He comes first. He doesn't come and rebuke Him first. What does He do? He touches Him wakes him up, and cooks. And just as an aside, maybe this morning you are not so much disoriented yourself. Maybe you have a pretty good direction with your life and you feel like the Lord is blessing you and you're walking with him, but, but I know that you know someone who is disoriented and off track. you wonder, how can you help them? Well, there's a model here. Touching them and feeding them is a good place to start. And I love that it's the angel of the Lord who does this. The angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord who wrestled with Jacob. The angel of the Lord who in different biblical stories encamps around Israel. The angel of the Lord who goes before them and fights with Joshua and This angel of the Lord lays down his sword and puts on an apron. And he feeds Elijah gently. That's what Elijah needs. That's what makes him, in the strength of that, he goes to the mountain. And then he stays in the mountain. He's not quite there yet. And so, what's the second way that God provides? He speaks. He speaks. There's been an earthquake. There's been the wind. There's been the fire. But we're told the Lord is not in those things. Where is He? As we've said, He has been in those things. He can be in the fire. He can be in the storm. But for Elijah here, he's in the whisper. The gentle whisper. What the King James has kind of instilled in our culture as the still small voice. Verse twelve. And after the fire the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, there was there came a voice to him and said, What are you doing here, Elijah? That's the voice. What are you doing here? Why are you so disillusioned? What are you believing about me? What are you believing about yourself? What are you believing about the world that has you where you are? And he speaks to him. And that is when Elijah leaves the cave and wraps the cloak around his face to meet the glory of God. He moves out first in the strength of being fed, and then he moves out with the whisper of God. And the Gospel for us this morning because this is not just a story told about Elijah, it's instructive for us, is that God still speaks. He still speaks in His Word, in the preaching of His Word, in the reading of His Word, in the voice of His Word. He still speaks. And as we're going to experience in just a minute, He still feeds. These are still the gentle provisions of God. The things that grip us and move us out ever so slowly and ever so gently out of the disorientation that, that settles over our lives, He still gently pulls us out so that we move towards Him In the strength of that food, we follow Him. We follow the star. This time of year, we are familiar with that story. with The star of wonder, star of light, star with royal beauty bright. It's westward leading, It's still proceeding. It's still proceeding. It's still guiding people back to true north. When we come to the manger like we do at Christmas time, like the wise men and the shepherds do, still, there are men and women who follow after the Lord, who find Him and see that He's the one that they should bow to, that they should see as the true God. And He is the voice. And the food of God, Jesus Christ. He is the Word, the Word who was with God, who was God, the word by which the world was created. The word, the Hebrews tells us that whose blood speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. His word still speaks to us. He is still the voice, and he is still the food, because his body was the one that was broken. And it's blood poured out. And it's food for us who, like Elijah, the journey is too much for us. You can't possibly be facing true north all the time without this guiding principle. Without Jesus Christ. And maybe it's the gentle provisions that He gives of His voice still speaking to us and is feeding us at the table. And Those things are the things that maybe gently bring us back to the Lord over and over again. And we return to Him, not in our own strength, not in the strength of our calling, not just because God is powerful. Many of us in this room believe that He's powerful and yet don't follow Him day to day. Why? Because maybe we're skipping out on the gentle provisions that He's given to us. To find him again. I'm reading this book right now by James K. A. Smith, a philosopher, writer, and, and he, he references the movie Lady Bird. I don't know if you guys have seen the movie Lady Bird. It's a great little film for those who are old enough to see it. Be discerning, parents. But it's this coming of age story. And it's this high school girl, and she calls herself Lady Bird. And um, people make fun of her, but she's, that's, that's her identity. I'm Lady Bird. And she's this rebellious teenager. And uh, she struggles with her parents, and her father's kind of disinterested and kind of depressed and out of a job. And the mother, the classic trope, is the overly concerned, overly you know, involved and wanting too much from her. And so she rebels, and she doesn't call herself by her name. She calls herself Lady Bird. And at one point earlier in the movie, um, somebody's asking her, filling out a form, and they say, um, what's your name? And she says, Lady Bird. And they say, is that your given name? And she said, it's the name I gave myself. Yes, it's my given name. Translation, I am true north. I decide what my identity is. I decide what's true and what's good for me. And the thing in this movie is that she wants to escape and she wants to leave her hometown in California and she wants to go all the way to the East Coast and she wants a brand new life and she wants to get away from all of the things that have trapped her and and so she struggles towards that and she eventually arrives at the new place. And as she's in the new place, she realizes she's also diso- disoriented there. And she at the end of the movie calls her mom in this place of disorientation and she says, "Hey mom, it's Christine." It's the name that you gave me, and it's a good name. And she describes in this phone call all the intersections of her hometown that she missed as she saw she was leaving. And it's like she's saying, I'm remembering all of the things that you did for me. Maybe all those annoying things that you did as you hovered over me. You clothed me, you spoke to me, you fed me, you housed me. Yes, you annoyed me, but I lived in this hometown, but it was also the place that I knew. And so even though it was full of monotony, now I realize as I left it, there's this, there's this structure there. And maybe all of those things that were, that were annoying to me at the time ended up being useful. Maybe they were the scaffolding that held up you know, my identity in a disorienting time, which high school is for everyone. and she's like she's realizing all of this. I'm realizing that the structure is here, these gentle provisions or maybe not so gentle sometimes. And maybe it's the return to those things that counts. It's returning back to the scaffolding that the Lord has given to us, the gentle provisions, not just waiting for our own sense of self-worth, not just waiting. For, you know, for a fire and an earthquake kind of moment. Something dramatic. But it's in the gentle provisions of God. His voice. It's opening up His Word in the morning and knowing that the still small voice is there. Opening up our hands in prayer. Knowing that He still speaks to us. It's opening up your heart in the, in the preaching of the Word and knowing that your life can be changed by it. It's opening your mouth at communion and being fed again by what He has done for you at the cross. Over and over and over again. Maybe it's those gentle provisions that are the scaffolding that holds you while you gently get your bearings. And when you come to them over and over again, you see that His voice is still speaking is still able to move us. We can go out from here in the strength, not of ourselves, not of our own callings, not of how good we are, but in the strength of, what, of his food, of what he has done for us in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He still speaks. He still feeds. He's still the, the still-proceeding star, still goes out in front of us and guides us back to a true understanding of home. It's found where Jesus is. Let's pray. Thank you for your word, Lord, and what it says to us, that you quiet us with your love. You rejoice over us with singing. Thank you for those words from Zephaniah. The gentle provision. That many of us may need rebuke this morning is obvious. That some of us have really lost our way is really evident to most of us, but I pray this morning That what would lead us back to you is your gentleness. That you would speak again to us, enliven us to your voice. Whether it's the voice of your word or the voice of preaching or the voice of whatever we may find it, Lord. And that we would find again the strength of what you have done for us here at the table as we partake this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, he gave it to his disciples, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup, and he said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's given for the remission of sins. Drink from it, all of you. As often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Those who believe, Jesus still speaks, and he still feeds And it's possible for you to leave this place in the strength of what He has done rather than in yourself. Do you believe that Gospel? Do you believe in what Jesus has done? Do you profess faith like our brother Pavan has this morning? Saying, this is where the source of life is. It's found here. This is my only strength. This is my only hope. For everyone who believes that and knows that, this table is for your provision. It's the gentle provision of God this morning to you. To nourish you in your walk of faith. The way that we're going to do that this morning is I'm going to invite Pavan up in just a second to come and partake of his First Communion. And then we're going to one by one come up through two lines on either side here. Rip off a piece of bread, dip it in the wine. It's going to be on the left side or the juice on the right side is the lighter color. And uh, you can partake here, or you can take it back to your seat and partake when you're ready. Um, And so we'll be singing together as well. Um, Come and eat and drink and remember and believe. The gifts of God are for you, the people of God. Come and eat and drink and remember. Pavan, come, I want to serve you, brother. Body of Christ, broken for you. Blood of Christ, shed for you. Come and eat and drink. Remember.
1: God.